morning. You guys should be more awake than the first group. Good morning. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I recognize, God, that all good things come from you. And Lord, I realize, Lord, that without you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me, God, speak through me, Lord, but it is you who does the work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Make it happen, God. Amen and amen. Uh, Craig and Rebecca, are you still here? They slipped out. Oh, there he is in the back. You know, I got to tell you something. The joy that they have experienced having bringing in a little boy and a girl. If you don't know this, I, my wife and I ran an orphanage for more than 15 years. And there's something about the experience of having a little girl or boy at your doorstep who is unclaimed. Who somebody used to bring children to the orphanage sometimes every week. And we have almost, at when we took over the orphanage, almost 140 children. And sometimes they would come in to the point where we just didn't know what to do. We couldn't take them all in. And when you look at that little girl or boy, there's something deep in your soul that just grieves for them. And when we took that little girl or boy in the orphanage, I always realized that it still was not God's best. That God really wanted that little girl or boy to be in a, with a family. We were an institution. That's not God's best. That it was the, all that there was, and so we, we had to do what we did, and we took them in. And we loved on them, and we spent great amounts of investment and time in them, but it was still not God's best. And so I just think what you did was great, uh, Craig, Rebecca. The Lord bless you guys for your efforts. I know it's difficult, um, and I know it's very expensive. It's not cheap. Um, one time... First of all, let me say this. I, I travel sometimes a great deal. And you know when you travel a lot, sometimes you bump into people that are sort of notable or they're, for lack of a better time, like a VIP. For, it, it, so you get the impression it's like, oh, my gosh, you walk into a room and you recognize them as somebody that's important. Happened to be a few times where it was somebody who was from uh, the executive office or somebody who was some big muckety-muck. And I would walk in and be like, oh, my gosh. And I'd, I would recognize them, and there'd be a bunch of people around. Now, I'm not the shyest guy in the world, so I would waltz right up to them, hi, and just throw my hand right in front of them. But, you know, you can't always do that. One time I was in a room with uh, Henry Kissinger, and his, the, secu- the Secret Service wouldn't let me get too close to him, so that was the end of that discussion. It just, he was over there, and that was the end of that. But it was kind of a cool moment to go, wow, I was in the same room with Henry Kissinger. And so once I was with the Secretary of Interior in the same room, I actually went up and talked to him, got a picture. It was kind of cool. But it was an interesting moment when you're in a room with somebody that's notable or that's quite famous. There's a, there comes a moment where you kind of envision in your mind walking in the room. And for the most part, they don't know me, so they don't even care I walked in the room. But sometimes you'll, you'll meet somebody, and they will go to great lengths to honor you. And they'll say, oh, and they'll see you, and they, they can tell you're looking at them. And so he will invite you over. Come here. And they will introduce themselves, and they will say, hi, you know, give me their name, and who are you, and where are you from? And, 
And they will honor me by not only acknowledging me and asking my name, but asking me who I am. But if you really want to honor somebody, you will allow them to know you. It is the ultimate honor. You know, it's not difficult to get to know people, but if you really want to honor somebody, you allow them to know you. So this morning, I want to honor you by allowing you to have a better glimpse of who I am. Because I have learned that if you really want to do ministry, you open the doors and allow people to see who you really are. And I want to be very transparent with you. So what I want to do is I want to share some things that I've struggled with for the longest time. It just basically took me forever to figure out. And I want to share with you some things that were, they were not no-brainers for me. They were difficult. But I need to give you some history and some background behind it. When my wife and I took over the orphanage in Cambodia, we basically showed up and the, the, one of the guys there pulled me aside and he said, I got good news and I've got bad news. <laughs> okay, this ought to be good. The good news is you and your wife are going to be the directors of the orphanage. The bad news is here's the keys. You start today. <laughs> it was it. We had only been in the country two weeks. Couldn't speak the language, have no idea what I'm doing. I instantly inherit an orphanage of 140 children and 19 staff. And so I get down there, and I have no idea. I have never had a single person work for me in my entire life. And I become a missionary and instantly inherit 19 staff and 140 children. And so it's in, a, it's in chaos. It's, it's Cambodia. The power would be out for weeks. People got sick. People died. I mean, it was just anarchy. The war was still going on. And they're like, you're in charge. And, oh, thanks, Mark. <laughs> we'll see you. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a real surprise. Now, you have to understand, in Cambodia, I'm a giant. I am, I am a giant. And so when we walk in public, nobody is generally taller than this. Even my wife looks tall in Cambodia, and she, if you know her, she's short. And so we would be out and about, and everywhere I go, I'm the easiest guy to spot. And we were actually in a, uh, uh, they have this thing called the Water Festival every year, and literally a million people from all over the country come into the city, into the capital city. It's a massive festival. And it's just people everywhere. And when one event ends, the people all kind of end and start heading down this center of the road. The roads are all blocked off. And as far as I can see are literally hundreds of thousands of little black heads bobbing up and down. But I am this much taller than everybody else. And everybody sees me. And so when I'm looking around, everywhere around me, there's all these little eyes. (laughs) You're this big guy. Man, do you stick out. To make matters worse, I can't speak the language. I don't understand the customs the way I would like to. And uh, I'm new, and I'm, I'm actually easily sunburned. And so Cambodia is so hot, I'm always red somehow, somewhere on my body. I look, I look and I, I look ridiculous. I don't even look good in the hot day. I'm sweating. And so the whole experience is I'm uncomfortable. Add that to the fact that I inherit 19 staff, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Now, you have to understand something. In Cambodia, government officials and people in positions of authority have great power, and they exercise that power in a way that's very cruel. And they lord their authority over other people. The Bible talks about that, but I saw it firsthand. 
And in Cambodia, when you're a foreigner, and especially as an American, they think you're the richest guy on the planet. And then you're paying everybody's salaries, and, and you have the right to fire people at will. There's no laws there that say you can't do this, you can't do that as far as hiring and firing people. I can just show up one day and say, I don't like the color of your hair. I don't like this. I don't like that. You're fired. The discussion's over. And the staff that I hire, there are no other jobs. And so, and the money that they got from the salaries that I paid them, they used to support most of their family, their parents, their brothers, their sisters. They all live under one roof. And so they are all dependent upon that job. And so they are so desperate to keep that job, they will do anything to do it. And I show up, and I'm clueless, and I'm in charge. And so I first get there, and I'm starting to, I, I realize that there's some things that need to be done. So I said, okay, you, you, and you, I need you to go do this. And then you, you, and you, I need you to do this. So I'm starting to kind of put things in motion, and I'm starting to establish some boundaries and some principles. And just crazy stuff. Uh, you know, new rule, you can't eat the neighbor's dog. It sounds crazy, but it's a new rule. We don't steal the neighbor's dog and eat it. That's the rule we had to make. <laughs> can't believe you're doing it, but you do it. You can't steal the neighbor's mangoes. You can't steal the neighbor's chickens. You can't do all these things. So I've got all these rules I'm having to create out of thin air. Believe it or not, they do do that, by the way. So it's a crazy moment, and I'm having to tell everybody what they can and cannot do. And they're just on pins and needles because I'm just throwing out do's and don'ts left and right. But when I leave... Everything kind of comes to a standstill. When I come back, they're all acting real busy trying to figure out what I want, but they really don't know what I want until I tell them directly. And so I would come back, and I would say, hey, how come this didn't get taken care of? And they said, well, you didn't tell us to do it. Okay, well, I figured, well, okay, do this, and then do this, and then I leave and come back, and they did, they, they'd stop. Wait, you, you quit. How come you didn't do this? There's another problem you didn't solve. Well, you didn't tell us to do it. And so finally I realized that, I'm not going to follow them around my whole life and tell them, do this, do this, do this. It's driving me crazy. And I said, why don't you guys figure this out? It's not rocket science. You see a need, you take care of it, just do something. They wouldn't do it. And I I thought, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they get it? How can they be so lazy? To be honest with you, that's what I thought. And then I started to realize the issue wasn't them. It was me. You see, the, the irony was in Cambodia, if you made decisions by yourself and somebody didn't tell you what to do, and if I was the boss and I didn't like it, I'd, I'd rip your head off. And the government officials in Cambodia force everybody to bring all the decisions to them, to make them look good, to make them look important. And then the people under them will accommodate them and bring all the smallest decisions to their doorstep and say, we can't think about anything. Only you are smart enough. Why don't you tell us what to do? And I'm, so I show up with a completely different mindset. Don't ask me, just make a decision. And if you screw it up, I don't care. I do stupid stuff all the time. Just figure it out and we'll work through it. They wouldn't do it. And so literally months went by and I'm pulling my hair out. And finally one day, uh, we decided that we were going to separate. We have a Sunday morning service for the small children and we do a Uh, puppets and things like that for the small kids, but we didn't really do anything for the adults. So we decided that we're going to do something different. In the morning, we would do that for the uh, little kids, but in the evening, we would put the little kids to bed, and then we would invite just the uh, staff to a special time where I would invest in them and teach them uh, uh, from the Bible. Now, I don't know the language well enough, 
to do that. So there's another man who's there with me. He's a missionary, but he's a Cambodian-American. Fled during the war, came back, speaks the language perfectly, and he says, Mark, I'll help you out for a while. And so we partnered together while we, ran, we did the work together. And so his name's Darth. So Darth shows up, and we're going through the process. Now, to be completely honest with you, I am not a polished speaker when it comes to preaching weekly out of the Bible. I'm not. I'm a good storyteller, but I'm rotten at preaching scriptures and all these biblical stuff. So I have to bring something to the table, and I'm not really that good at it. And so Darth and I are sort of trying to figure it out, and we literally wait until Saturday evening to try to figure out what we're going to do for Sunday night. We're so prepared, we have no idea what we're going to do. And we're literally just in a quandary, like, what are we going to do? They don't understand things. We don't, I don't know how to really explain it. I've never entered my mind. I've never met somebody where I had to explain the word sin. Because in the Cambodian language, the word sin literally means bad karma. And so when I say you have sin, they think to themselves, I have bad karma. And what they think is, no, I paid the monk, and the monk chanted over me, and I gave him money. I have good karma. What are you talking about? And so now I'm trying to explain things that had never entered my mind that are so simple, but they're so difficult in their culture. And so nothing's working. So, so Darth and I are t- sitting together on a Saturday night going, Mark, Mark, he says to me, Mark, what are we going to do? And I'm, a, I'm like, I don't know. What do you think we should do? And we're kind of toying back and forth. And then Darth says to me, why don't we do a foot washing service? Let's wash the staff's feet. Now, I'm glad I didn't suggest that because he was Cambodian. He would know that in Cambodia, men never touch a woman. A husband doesn't even show affection to his wife. He won't hold her hand. They certainly won't kiss. They won't, in public, they won't do anything. In fact, Cambodians don't even kiss. They think it's dirty. And so uh, no affection in any way, shape, or form, especially in public. And he thinks we should have a foot washing service where we, where I literally wash the staff's feet. And I have to, you know, unlike here where you take your socks and shoes off and your feet are pretty clean, they only have flip-flops and their feet are dirty. And so when you come to church at the orphanage, you, flip, you knock your flip-flops off, leave them at the door, and you walk in, and your feet are just coated with stuff. They've been walking around all day long in the dirt. And so it's not like just flick some water over their feet. You have to physically wash their feet because they're dirty. So I know this is going to be a big one because you don't touch women as a man. And then to make matters worse, I'm this big white American who they don't understand, who has all powerful ability to bring them joy, keep, give them a job or destroy their life and fire them. And they don't understand me. And so we're kind of trying to toy with this, figure out what to do. And so I decided that if they find out about it in advance, this is going to be a bust. So I literally hide the water and the pail behind the curtain. So they have no idea what's going to happen. And then in Cambodia, we have these overhead fans that blow really low, to cool us down because it's over, you know, 85, 90 every night. No, no air conditioner, just open windows with steel bars, and we let the air come and go. So we get the fans blown away. Well, I want them to be able to hear what we're going to do. So we come up with this idea where, Brooke, uh, where Darth reads the Bible, and then he describes in great detail who God of the universe is. We turn the fans off, we put candles out, we light them, bring the staff in, have them sit in a big circle, 
And I'm over on sitting on the side. And Darth begins with Genesis. And he talks about the God that created the heavens and the earth. The all-powerful God. The God and the majesty and the might. And the God who, who punishes sins. And the God who gives mercy. And he goes through this whole thing. And, the, and, the, and then he talks about how Jesus came. And how Jesus brought himself to serve and not to be served. And then I reach over and I slide from behind the curtain a huge steel pail, a pan about this big, about this big around. And I slide it out. And he had just finished talking about how Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And you could have heard, <gasps> you could hear the breath of all the staff going, oh, no. <laughs> and it was like, we can't move because he's our boss and he'll fire us, I think, if he does, if, if we leave but we do not want to be a part of this. I could see it on their face. They were terrified. I have no idea what's going to happen. I slide this metal thing over. I throw a towel over my shoulder, and I begin with the first woman. And, and the other ones are just like, you can see the sweat pouring down their faces of like, oh, no, he's coming this way. Now, I, it's 85 and 90, and I'm, sweat's pouring off me. My shirt's wet. I'm nervous as it is. And I'm bent over. They're just little tiny things anyway. And I'm a giant. So I'm leaning over and it, even bending over, they're tiny. And so there's this huge mammoth guy bending over their feet, trying to wash them. And without humiliating them, I'm holding their feet, washing them. And as I go from woman to woman, most of my staff are women. And that night, there was not a single man that was there that night. My, my office staff, the guys in, are the office, but the dorm moms are all women. So I think there were 16 women there that night. And I go from woman to woman to woman right down the pile, right down the list, right in the circle. And as I came back around the circle, you could hear a pin drop. And Darth kept talking about the love of God and how Jesus came and he loved us. And they began to weep. It was Unbelievable. And the presence of God was so real. And when I finished, we closed the service in a prayer. And I thought they would all get up and go, wow, that was great, Mark. They all call me Papa. I thought they'd go, oh, Papa, that was great. Thanks. But instead, it was like, boom, they shot out the door. It, and Darth and I were looking at each other like, wow, what happened? They're gone. You know how sometimes you go to a church service and it's really great and you don't want to leave? I thought, well, they're going to stick around. This will be great. Boom, they shot out the door. It was like, you know, nobody said a word, got their shoes on, off the door, out the door they went. We were kind of standing there like holding water, like, wow, what happened? All I got is a pail of dirty water to show for the night. I got nothing to show for it. They left. We didn't have a chance to talk. Nothing happened. And we were kind of a surprise. We didn't really expect any, we didn't know what to expect. And so... We thought, well, I think something good happened, but we're really not sure because they shot out the door so fast. And so the next day was a Monday, and we have a staff meeting every Monday, and we bring all the staff together, and we sit in a big circle, and usually I go over a list, usually share a scripture and talk to them a little bit, and then we, we share a list of things that have to be dealt with, kids who get, you know, started a fire in the room, something crazy like that. And so before we do anything, Darth says, before we do anything, would anybody like to talk about last night? 
And it was like, all of a sudden, oh no, he's going to talk about this. And then he said, what happened? And one woman burst into tears. And she sobbed. And she said, you can't understand the symbolism that Papa represented to us. He was a man of great power and influence, just like God. And he humbled himself. We don't even know him. And even though he knew that it was not appropriate to touch our feet, we allowed him to do it anyway. And it so humbled us. And they said, we have decided, we were talking after we left the service yesterday, last night. We talked amongst ourselves. We could hardly even whisper what happened. But they came in that morning and they said, we have decided that if Jesus loves us that much, we will serve him all the days of our life. I never dreamed that would ever happen. And they told me, they said, because you did this for us, you don't know this, but when you turned your back, we would do what we wanted. We wouldn't do what you asked. But because you did this for us, we will do what you ask. We will work with you and we will serve you even when you're not looking. I was like, oh, thanks. I didn't know that was going on. (laughs) Man, it was one of those moments. I had no idea that the real issue was they just didn't know who I was. They did not know that I really cared. They just assumed I was like everybody else, every leader they'd ever seen their whole life who brought their position down to bear and demanded from them something from that pressure. It's interesting. In Mark 4:38, the disciples are on the boat with Jesus and he's sleeping on the back. And I did not realize how universal this question was. But when you see this from the, with the disciples' perspective, they're in the boat, there's a storm coming, Jesus sleeping, and they wake him up and their comment to him or their, 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 their shout is, Jesus, don't you even care? Don't you even care that we're going to drown? And that was the cry of my staff. Don't you care about us? You care more about the work than you do about the worker. And then suddenly God opened a door into the life where I was able to say, I care about you. You're more important to me than the work. I did not realize how universal a need that is for all of us. You know, it's interesting. God caused something to happen to me. If you, uh, we, we ran the orphanage for a few years. Things were kind of going well. And... Um, All of a sudden, I want to say, boy, 15 years, all of a sudden, God put a restlessness in me. It was like he struck me. And something stuck here. And I just said, man, I don't know what it is. It's bothering me. And I was just, I was just, I I couldn't figure it out. Just restless. And I, uh, I, 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 you know, I was like, you know. Lord, what's wrong with me? Am I, I'm never restless. Am I, am I not reading the Bible enough? Am I not praying enough? What is it that I'm doing wrong? 
And I was just floundering around to the point where my wife actually said to me, you're driving me crazy. You need to figure this out. I was just pastoring her to no end. And finally, she's like, I've had it. Figure this thing out. Just go do something. And so I literally locked myself in my office for two days. I have a, there's a bathroom in there and a little couch type thing and, and all my books and stuff. And so I locked myself in my office for two days and I fast and pray. And I'm like, God, I'm so desperate. I have to figure this out. This is driving me crazy. And, I, I, you know, every chance I get, I, I, I read, I pray, uh, I fall asleep, I try to do this. I, I, I look at this book, I look at that book. I'm talking to God for hours. And finally, there comes a point on the second day where I just said, God, I don't get it. If you just tell me what to do, I'll do it. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said to me, Mark, what do you want to do? What? What kind of a question is that? God asked me, Mark, what do you want to do? That was a question I realized I had never asked myself. You see, when I was a boy, my dad made all the decisions for me. He's a very, very powerful man, very brutal man. When I, got in the, I joined the military, and I was in the Air Force for 10 years, and if you don't know it, they like to make most of the decisions for you. <laughs> Some of you who have been in the service know what I'm talking about. But when you're in the ministry, the needs make most of the decisions for you. You are driven by the need. There are so many problems, you can't even begin to try to figure out what you're going to do. I got a kid sick. You got this kid who's dying. I got this kid. I got this problem. I got a policeman who's demanding money. It never ends. I got staff problems. Oh, my gosh. Who cares what I think? Let's just solve the problem. And then all of a sudden, the Lord asked me, Mark, what do you want? Man, that was a question I had never entered ever in my mind that God would ask me that. And I started to dig through the Bible. Does God really ask that question? And I found out in Jeremiah, there's a part where Jeremiah is actually uh, amongst the captives. Jerusalem has fallen. The city has fallen to Nebuchadnezzar and his army. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's commander-in-chief, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He goes over and looks and finds Jeremiah amongst the captives. And he pulls him out and sets him free and says this. The Lord your God has decreed this disaster over this place. But I am setting you free. The whole country lies before you. Choose where you want to go. Choose where you want to go, Jeremiah. And then in Abraham and Lot. Lot says to Abraham says to Lot, look, our, our, the land can't contain our animals. We've got too many. But I want you to choose where you want to go. If you go this way, I'll go that way. If you go that way, I'll go this way. But you choose where you want to go. And so I thought to myself, man, God, is, is that really the way it is? I, I was always taught you just do what you're told. You pray and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to pray and obey. I just thought that's the way it is. The more that you knew God, the more he told you what to do. I never entered my mind that God cared what I thought. And then I realized, and this one took me, this one took me a while to figure out, but here's what happened. I told my boss, I said, look, I don't know what it is, but I got to figure this out. I've got to figure out, Lord, what do you want? You know, what, I, I didn't even know what I wanted. I never asked myself, I never even gave myself that permission. And so I told my boss, I said, I want to take some time off. I have to actually, of all places, fly to Alaska and speak in Fairbanks. I'm in Cambodia. 
And he, I said, but on the way in, I have to fly into Seattle. I know there's a counselor, a Christian man who counsels ministers. And I would like to spend a week with him and just say, here's what I am. You know, kind of here's spill my old guts. You know, this is what I've done. This is what I think. This is what I am. And if he says, you've lost your marbles, Mark, at least I know, okay, this is where I'm at. So I asked my boss. He said, go ahead, Mark, take some time. So I took a week. I flew into Seattle, and I sit down with this guy, fill out these little charts, put a dot here, dot here, dot here, send it in, and we sit down for hours and talk. And he says to me this. He said, Mark, he said, first of all, you're not going through depression. You're not going through burnout. Your marriage is fine. He said, I think that God is moving you to a deeper relationship with him. And I was like, what? But all I cared really about was that you're not, you haven't lost your marbles. You're doing fine. Everything else kind of went over my back. Yeah, yeah, sure. I haven't lost my marbles. I'm okay. And the rest of it, I didn't really give it much thought. And out the door I went. Came up to Alaska. And so time, it was during that time that God downloaded something into my mind I had never understood. And this one was difficult for me to figure out, but I want to share it with you. I've learned that in the kingdom of God, our relationship with the Lord mirrors the relationship we have with our children. You see, when my son is eight years old, when he was eight years old, the conversation was somewhat one-sided. Brush your teeth. Clean your room. When he's 13 or 14, I tolerate his opinion. When he's 18 or 19, I start to solicit his opinion. And when he's 30, the last thing I want to do is tell him what to do every day of his life. I would feel like a failure as a parent. I never realized our relationship with the Lord mirrors that. That as you mature in the Lord, God gives you a different way of of a relationship. It's a different way that he communicates with you. When you're young, it's pretty direct. But I've learned that as you mature, God uses passion to direct you. He builds passion in you. And he allows you to say, where's your passion, Mark? What makes you happy, glad, sad, and mad? Figure it out. And then it gives you, you can wrestle with God like Jacob wrestled with that angel. It's interesting, in Exodus 33, it says that Moses would, uh, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business, but instead I call you friends. There's a time where you start out as being servants, and then it, it transforms the mature process where you become friends. And your relationship with the Lord is mirrored by that maturity. I never realized how important intimacy was, was to God. That there's a season where God wants to really develop intimacy with you. It's interesting that the more that we spend time with him, the more he changes us. And, and we did it, it, it. I'm trying to say it in such a way. The more we know him, the more it changes us. In fact, I've learned that the only way to receive something new is to get rid of something old. When, you, when your hands are full and I want to give you something new, you got to get rid of something old. And I did not realize, but the example is with Moses. Moses is the prince of Egypt. He goes to the best schools in Egypt. He wears the best clothes in Egypt. 
He has the most influential friends in Egypt. He is Pharaoh's daughter's son. He eats the best food in Egypt. He rides around in the nicest chariot in Egypt. And there comes a season where God says, I want intimacy with you. But in order to do that, I have to take something away from you before I can give you something new. There comes a time Moses kills a man. God, he ends up fleeing, goes into the desert, and God leaves him there. Year after year after year, taking away from him. And Moses, I'm sure, had to ask questions like, God, why did this happen to me? When am I going to get out of this one? Where are you? What if I would have done this differently? The the W questions, the when, the why, the where, the what's. But for some reason, God never answers those questions. He just doesn't go there. It isn't until you learn to ask the right question that God answers. And this is the right question. Who am I? That's the right question. Moses asked it at the burning bush. The bush is burning. He walks up to the bush. God says, I am the God of your fathers. And then the Lord says, you're Moses. You're going to do this. And he says to the God, who am I? that you have asked me to do this. I have learned that sometimes God has to take something away from you to give you something new. And when it comes to intimacy, sometimes the Lord has to take away the things that literally define you as who you are. We have to recognize God in a new light. Sometimes our old way of thinking has to be stripped away for us to recognize who God really is. And it's interesting. First, God has to reveal himself to Moses, and then Moses figures out who he is. You know, it's interesting. The the world has us look inward. You want to figure out who you are? Look on the inside. You know, you do these self-evaluation things, and you kind of have this, there's a whole... Uh, mindset of just looking on the inside to figure out who you really are. But that's not what God thinks. God says, look at me and I'll let you know who you are. That's really the way it is. It's kind of backwards. If you want to find out who you are, find out who he is. You know, all throughout scripture, that relationship of being a friend carries great weight. In fact, in a negative sense, we see it often in Scripture. Matthew 11, Jesus says, they call me a glutton. They say a a, a drunkard and a friend of taxpayer, of uh, tax collectors. You know, you're not only are you, (laughs) this is kind of funny, you're a glutton, you're a drunkard, And if we really want to throw it uh, gas on the fire, a friend of tax collectors, it doesn't get any worse than being his friend. That's the bottom of the heap. Interesting. When Judas came to betray Jesus, Jesus, Judas came up and kissed him. And Jesus said, do what you came for friend. That's what Jesus said. Do what you came for friend. In John 19, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, 
If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. It's the trump card, the friend word. It doesn't get any worse than being somebody's friend when you're evil. Ironically, they use that very word against Jesus. You're a friend of tax collectors, and we want you to kill Jesus so that you're a friend of Caesar. James 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That word friend is a very powerful word. But I want to do something. I want to insert the word intimacy in that. Not that I'm trying to create new scriptures, but I thought it has an interesting look at it. Matthew 11, the glutton. Here he is, a glutton and a drunkard and intimate friends of tax collectors. Matthew 26, do what you came for, my intimate friend, he says to Judas. James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that intimate friendship with the world means enmity against God? You don't recognize the value and the power of intimacy and friendship and the way that God looks at it. You know, it's interesting. I travel sometimes a great deal. And, you know, you, I walk into a church. I have no idea who they are. I've never been to that church before. And I, I literally just get up on the platform for the first time, and, and, and there they are. But you know what's interesting? I can tell a lot about that church by what God has me say to them. Do you understand that principle? There's a level of maturity that, that if that church is, is a mature church, sometimes I will say things so profound, I will be shocked myself because they're in a position to take some of the most deep spiritual truths and apply them. And other times I will speak Sunday morning at one church and it'd be like, wow, was that great? And I will go to the same, a different church and a different night, or a Sunday night, and I will give the same message. And it will just kind of go flat. And I thought, man, I, what did I do wrong? And then I realized it wasn't me. Paul talks about either the mature, you can give them meat, or he's frustrated because he has to only give you milk. And I did not realize that your ability to minister has more to do with the people you're ministering to than it does with you. You understand that principle? The best gift you can give your pastor is to learn and to drive in and become spiritually mature. You will pull out of him some of the greatest teachings in the Bible that there are. But if you fight that and refuse to grow and mature spiritually, he will be spoon-feeding you for a long time. And as a pastor, I can promise you that's going to be frustrating. Jesus offers us the ultimate honor. He invites us to know him. Remember I mentioned that earlier? You meet some big muckety-muck, he gets to know you, that's great. But if he really wants to honor you, he invites you to know him. Jesus invites us to know him. It is the ultimate honor. Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I, I never understood until there comes a point in time where you recognize deep communion with God, how much I missed because I was too busy doing stuff. 
that having an intimate relationship with God and how valuable that is. I'm telling you, the presence of God in my life, I, I love it. When I spend time with the Lord in the morning, so for some of you guys, just give you some gee whiz advice. If your house is busy or loud, go out in the garage. I walk around the car that's parked in the garage and just walk around my car and talk to God. It's the greatest place in the world to be because there's nobody that can hear you. I talk out loud when I pray. I get up in the morning, I walk around my dining room table, and I just spend time with the Lord. And there's something about clinging to and asking God for intimacy that changed me. And I don't understand the principle. I don't understand how it works, but I understand the principle. And it happened with Moses. You must give up what you already possess. And then when you meet with him, then he tells you who you really are, and you get a new identity. You gain a new name, and you gain value over who you are. When Moses went to the burning bush, there's something there that I just overlooked, but I wanted to share it with you because I think it's pretty profound. The bush is burning. Moses walks up and he goes, oh, wow, there's a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And the Bible says that Moses walked over to the bush to see what it was. But you, you miss the part, the next verse. And the next verse says this. God saw that Moses came over, and so he spoke to him. Do you understand what happened? Moses goes, oh, gee, look at that bush. But had he not, the Bible says that God saw that Moses came over. And so that's when God spoke. Moses responded to that. My experience has been sometimes God does the, the bizarrest way of, of basically calling us to meet with him. But at the same time, there, there's that point where God says, here's the bush. I'm calling you. And Moses is the one that goes, I got to go see this. And it's when Moses stepped forward that God says, okay, you came to me. And he said, I am the God of your fathers. And then he said, you are Moses, the deliverer of Israel. It changed Moses forever. And it sent him on a mission and transform an entire nation and a world. I got to tell you something. When I went to Cambodia a few years ago, they actually gave me a little piece of paper, and they said to me, what country would you like to work in? And I wrote Cambodia. And they said, well, give us a few other countries. And I, and I said, they said, actually, the paper said, would you consider another country? And I said, no. And he said, they asked me, they said, Why? Why won't you go to another country? And I said, I want to go. I want to go someplace where no one else wants to go. If I'm going to do this, I want to do it. I don't want to go where everybody else wants to go. I want to go where nobody wants to go. I have learned that oftentimes that's what happens when it comes to a relationship with God. Lord, I want to go where nobody else wants to go, it seems like. Everybody's, I'm not trying to, I don't want to speak bad. I've learned that intimacy with God is, there's a price to pay. It's not showing up at the drive-in window at McDonald's. You don't become intimate with a girl who's handing you a burger in five seconds or less. It takes time. It takes time to spend time with God to know him. You must give God permission to take something from you before he can give you something new.
and there is a price to pay. But I promise you, it's worth it. If you would, stand with me, please. I would like to, if you've heard me speak before, I love to have a time where we spend time at the altar. And I would like to invite you to spend some time and press God, push him. I would, I would like you to say, Lord, I'm willing to pay the price. And though it may cost me, this is so important to me, God, I want to know what it means to be intimate with you. And I'm willing to pay that price. And I, and I, want, you, I want to challenge you this morning that you put yourself in a position where God can use you to change the course of history and the lives of people all around the world. The greatest change is what God does in you. And then after he has changed you, you can change the world. But it always starts with you first. And it starts not by looking in. It starts by looking at him. And so I would like to challenge you this morning just to come and spend some time at the altar. Press God. Ask him, Lord, I'm here. Take me, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. But God, put your passion in my heart. Make me a man or a woman of God. Somebody who says, I'll do whatever you ask, Lord. And the Lord will send you forth with a new identity and with a new vision and a new passion that will change the course of history. Amen? Come on, if you would. Anybody who'd like to spend some time at the altar, we'll be